that basically we build on what Minnesota has boldly as a state codified in their own state laws and start to open up other states doing the same thing. Beverages should very quickly be, you know, $10 billion. They could be $40 billion in a couple of years and be competing with the rest of the industry. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Adam Terry, co-founder and CEO of Cantrip Seltzers. Adam, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I am doing great, Brian. Thank you for uh, having me on The Dime today. We're excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to Adam, learn a little bit more about uh, cannabis beverages. And uh, how are you doing, Brian? I'm doing well. And Adam, for your location, please, East Coast or West Coast? East Coast. Let the record say, Callan, another one. Another one. Sorry, we got to the, the only place where cannabis is important. Wow. We're, 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 we're a bold statement. I like it. I like it. Coming out firing. <laughs> certainly clipping that. So Adam, for our listeners that are unfamiliar about you, can you give a little background about yourself? Uh, yeah, so I've been in the cannabis industry since uh, early 2015. I have a background in engineering, product design, and you know it's basically been my whole career uh, post college, focusing on cannabis, focusing on cannabis products. Spent a couple of years extracting a lot of oil in California, and then I've spent more years back on the East Coast in Massachusetts, working with MSOs, designing labs, designing products, and then eventually creating my own product back in, uh, in mid 2020. And that's where we get to cantrip. Any, any hesitations early on to get into cannabis? Was it something you knew you always wanted to be involved with? If you want to go really back in my cannabis career, I started consuming cannabis in high school. And then I joined the pot club at UMass. Uh, when I went, uh, I went to UMass Amherst, which had one of the oldest uh, cannabis organi- activist organizations uh, in the country. It was the oldest club on campus at UMass when I was there. And they threw a big festival every year for it. So I always knew the thought that it was going to be something I could never put on my resume. Uh, I did not expect to go into cannabis professionally. I wasn't sure where I'd end up professionally. And then I moved to California. Uh, and when I was in California, it seemed there was a big need for engineers who were willing to take the risk of going into cannabis. So there really wasn't any hesitation. I just kind of jumped straight into it. Really not that many regrets other than I probably can't get a job outside cannabis at this point. But we'll see. I don't think I need to. Hopefully. When you're going through uh, kind of these product developments, what made you settle on uh, a beverage? That's a funny question because we were just talking about headset before the uh, you know the recording started. And uh, in 2018 and 2019, I was adamantly against beverages because as someone who worked for a multi-state operator whose job it was to design everything downstream of the flower, my position was always, there's no way we can fit a beverage facility inside this vertically operated facility. You know, usually at that time, they were giving us maybe 5% of the total footprint for manufacturing operations, usually something like 500 to 1,000 square feet in some of these smaller MSOs. So I said, why would we dedicate, you know, a good chunk of our footprint to what is going to be, you know, half percent to 1% of our revenue and it's going to be the lowest margin product we make. I also went to Colorado that year in 2018 and every beverage I tried was pretty terrible. So I thought there was no way to make a good tasting beverage. And then in 2020, I decided to make a beverage myself at home. I realized this is not only possible, uh, you can make a great tasting one. And it's really started to unlock for me when I thought about volume versus margin because the beverage had an opportunity to get repurchasing behavior in a way that I didn't see as possible in edibles. 
you know, a typical edible pack is you know, 20 servings in Massachusetts, 10 servings in California, Colorado. And for my wife and I, we were only consuming, you know, one gummy maybe a week or you know, two gummies a week between us. So it would take a couple months to get that repurchase. I thought if I could make a low-dose beverage so that you would want to consume more than one in a single um, you know, situation that you could get people to repurchase more frequently. And that's really where beverage started to unlock for me. Uh, and when I started truly earnestly working on Cantrip in summer of 2020. So you made the beverage at home, you started working on Cantrip on the side. How, how quickly after that did you decide this might have legs, we wanted to take on a put time and effort into this project? Yeah, I, uh, I left my previous job in early 2020 due to unrelated reasons. Uh, mostly, uh, there were some things going on with the company. The big ban hit us pretty hard in 2019 as a company. Uh, the company I was previously working for made most of their money off the vapor cartridges in Massachusetts. So I like to say that Charlie Baker personally killed my career. Uh, so I was pretty dedicated to it pretty quickly. Uh, it was something I really wanted to do. Uh, I, as somebody who's been a product developer, I really wanted to create a product of my own that I could focus on the branding and the product uh, myself. So Cantrip was really figuring out which product I wanted to do. And I definitely had a lot of people tell me, don't bother with the beverage, go make a cartridge if you're that good at making things. And to me, it seemed the, the, uh, the cartridge market was saturated and there was no way I was going to sell two MSOs cartridges when they're already producing them. Now, a quick aside on that is I was very wrong on that because that was exactly what I told Liam O'Brien at Fernway uh, right before they launched. I was like, I don't think this is going to work because MSOs already make their cartridges now. Fernway is like a $35 million company in one state. So I was very wrong on that. Uh, but moving into the beverage, I still saw an opportunity for something like six or seven million in revenue in the first year for the beverage market in Massachusetts. No one else was online. This was before Levia launched. Uh, this was before really anybody had launched except Sip at ComCan. So I thought that the opportunity was there for the taking. So my goal was to fundraise and get to market as quickly as possible. We managed to uh, close our first round of fundraising in March of 2021. We launched in June of 2021, using a manufacturing partner in Massachusetts. And that put us as, I think, the second or third beverage on the marketplace, uh, right alongside Levia, um, High Five. And at the time, I think Can had launched one flavor in Massachusetts. Um, and you know, those are still the top performers in the market today. So first mover advantage, still key. You started working as an engineer out in California, manufacturing the ingredients, and then transitioned into product development, and now you're kind of running your own business. What is that transition from like an engineering kind of technical-based skill set to kind of more of a business-focused mindset? Can you kind of walk us through that transition that you've been going through? Yeah, I, I, it's definitely an interesting question. Not everybody in engineering ends up moving into business uh, from the more technical side. But engineering as a discipline really is business with a focus on understanding the science and technical aspects of business. Um, at least that's the way I always viewed it. Certainly, you can get really complicated in the academia of different things within the discipline of chemical engineering or any other type of engineering. But at the end of the day, the, what, the way I saw it is that as an engineer, my job was to communicate what are the economics and the effectiveness of our manufacturing processes. And so focusing on things like THC recovery and the extraction process uh, and other KPIs really put me in a position to help communicate to my bosses where we did need to spend money. And as I went further down that rabbit hole, um, I started to get more involved with the business end of things. And that uh, particularly interested me. Um, 
as I moved into the product development phase, you know, the first thing you do in product development is you develop your bill of materials and you say, how much is this going to cost me to make roughly? Because you don't really want to make a product if you're not going to be able to make money on it from a retail price point. So I think product development is really uh, when I moved into that area after kind of finishing the lab designs that I did for these MSOs was where the business really sparked for me because product development is such a cross-functional field. I mean, you really have to be taking in the concept of, you know, what's going to sell from marketing and sales. You have to be uh, driving unit economics. You have to be thinking about um, capital spend. And so all of that really is what it takes to start a business in many ways. You know, I think I'm a little bit light on the sales and marketing expertise, or at least I was back then. I'm a little bit more averse now. But the, you know, doing all of that together really put me in a, in a key position to understand how cannabis businesses work, um, what is necessary to make them work, why they're unique from other businesses. And because I spent my entire career sort of enveloped in that rather than you know, having moved into it from other industries, I think it put me in a, in a great position to be able to run a cannabis business more than any other type. And so far, it's been somewhat successful. And one of the things that you did not share were some of the obstacles that are just unique for cannabis, right? Operating a cannabis business kind of layers on different challenges. So getting started early on with Cantrip, were there unforeseen obstacles when you got started that you hadn't thought about prior that now looking back seem kind of obvious? Uh, certainly. I mean, in many cases, there are things you foresee, but you can't do anything about, uh, I think is, is a better way to put it. Uh, distribution costs certainly were higher than we anticipated. Uh, you know, having in Massachusetts, there's no third party distributor model, or at least there wasn't, you know, three years ago. We have had logistics um, come online in Massachusetts, but it's not the same as California, where there's a distribution license type and it's an entire business for many of these people. Um, we really only have a couple of fully full fledged distributors now in Massachusetts. And even then, it's not the same thing because in Massachusetts, uh, they can't really buy the product from you wholesale. It's essentially a consignment distribution where they can warehouse it and they can distribute it uh, to people, but you don't get paid for the product until the dispensary pays for it. So uh, in you know that can cause a lot of cash flow issues, but also just the expense and the cost of it. So it's really key to have internal logistics for distribution if you're a manufacturing licensee in Massachusetts. And that, unfortunately, was not something that our first manufacturing partner had in the States. Now, I like to think that we were one of the earliest uh, companies doing the style of manufacturing. We were where we actually provided the equipment and the personnel um, and the expertise and know-how to set up these manufacturing lines inside somebody else's license. And that worked off sort of a service um, a, a agreement with them which at the time our attorney said he hadn't seen elsewhere in the state. So we we're one of the early people to really be able to bring a brand that wasn't um, you know, owned by a manufacturing license into the state, um, at least you know, in a small and independent way. And that allowed us to remain a little bit more capital efficient um, in terms of our raise. It means that we didn't have to overshoot. And you know, that, that really helped us get off the ground in a strong way. Uh, where we were, I think, MediaSA actually had us listed as one of the top 10 retailing beverages in the entire country within 60 days for a launch. That's incredible. Was there any other major differences between like the California market and Massachusetts market? Oh, I mean, between my time in California, I mean, I worked yeah. in California in 2015. Yeah. Uh, so the differences were myriad and almost indescribable in terms of the level. I mean, it was almost unregulated when I was out there in 2015. It was medical, right? You know? Yeah. I mean, I had a med card. I mean, we all had to have med cards. You did have to have one. 
You did. <laughs> and we were operating within the parameters of the law that existed, which I'm pretty sure like the regulations went as far as like medical marijuana is now legal and you must have a med card and be a nonprofit. I'm not sure how much else existed. Like vapor, <laughs> I was making largely vapor purchases out there uh, for a brand that still exists. And uh, they just, there were no, right? You didn't have to test your product. Uh, we nope. still did because uh, frankly, you know, it's a marketing aspect. If you want to like sell your product at the time, it's like, who's got the highest THC results. And Do you remember when they brought pesticide tests online for the first time? I actually already left California. When oh, they, when they <laughs> that, yeah. um, which was a whole thing because actually it happened right after I left. So I still have many friends yeah. there who said we had to basically remove everything from our facility, scrub it down and start over uh, because there was pesticides on everything at the everything. time. So I left California in like uh, October 2016, or uh, I, I left the state at the end of that year, but I left that job in October. So right before the election happened and Prop 64 passed, yeah. part of the reason I left is because I was looking at the regulations. I was looking at Sylvia was working and I said, there's no way this company ever meets these regulations. And I believe they do uh, at this point in time. Uh, but I, I think I was still largely right. Almost nobody met the regulations when they actually went into effect. And so it took years for them to start even actually trying to enforce these things because, you know, there was no bio track then in California, there was no metric. Uh, and it wouldn't be until I moved back to the East coast and started working in New Hampshire that you saw bio track or a seed to sale system for the first time. But it was also one of the very few people on the East coast at that time who actually knew how to extract cannabis professionally. Uh, and so that was one of the motivating forces in me returning to the East coast was I really felt like an opportunity for people who knew how to extract and infuse things um, in a way that just didn't really exist in 20 or you know, early 2017 uh, in Massachusetts. So slightly switching gears, cantrip, what are the early flavors and how did you come up with the dosing mechanism for how, for how much to put in each can? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, early flavors, lemon, basil, ginger, peach, and grapefruit, hibiscus were what we launched with. Uh, a little insider info is that the first product I wanted to make was actually something I called Shizandraberry Dream. Shizandraberries are these great, really tart pink berries. Uh, they're also known as the five-flavored berry or omicha. Uh, and there's actually a local grower in Massachusetts, but the berries were very expensive. And more to the point, I don't think anybody knew what they were, so I decided to go with something a little bit more accessible to the human population. Um, from the very beginning, I wanted to have terpenes uh, infused in them as well. That was really important to me just for flavor purposes. I really wanted to create flavors that blended with the taste of cannabis because I had created a lot of products that were essentially, you know, raspberry with cannabis underneath or cherry with cannabis underneath. I never felt like that was the ideal way to do blending. I was a bartender for a very long time. I have a, you know, I like to think I have a fairly well-developed palate. So I focused on creating things I thought would blend with the taste of cannabis and terpenes were an important parts. Um, it was really exciting to work with enough beverage. I mean, uh, I honestly, if I did go back to bartending at some point, might start to use terpenes directly in cocktails because they have such marvelously complex flavors and only need a tiny drop. So we like to think it was like a garnish on the, the cocktail. The grapefruit is also originally grapefruit elderflower, which eventually changed to hibiscus uh, because I like the flavor and I like the pink color. Grapefruit hibiscus continues to be one of our most popular flavors. In terms of choosing the dosing, it was originally going to be two and a half by two and a half in terms of THC and CBD. I really want to low dose products, so less than the uh, the maximum allowed in Massachusetts, which is five milligrams, because I want to encourage people to drink more than one in the evening and make it taste good enough that they would you know seek to. You know, we all have that problem where you eat a really good cannabis infused gummy and then you want to eat more gummies, but uh, you probably shouldn't. 
because you'll get way too stoned, uh, which is why it's important to buy a bag of uninfused gummies when you do go to take a gummy, in my opinion. But the three by two ended up as a, it just felt better, honestly, when trying it. And I thought it was going to be easier basically to hit our testing ranges with, uh, with an integer than try to say like 2.5 specifically, because as anyone who's tried to do cannabis testing, particularly in the beverage space, knows, you know, there's going to be testing variants. And so if you claim to be two and a half, but like you're 2.7, I think, there's less forgiveness there than if you claim to be three and you're at 2.7, um, to be honest. So it's, it's all in that range, um, which I think is perfectly kind of acceptable. And there's, I think, a 5% variance in cannabis testing is as good as you can really hope for on average. And I've seen a lot of MSOs, like data sheets that suggest they have much wilder swings than that. Um, a part of it is the consistency of creation, and even a bigger part of it is just the consistency of testing between different matrices. Um, beverage is a particularly difficult matrice, uh, matrix to test, uh, and so a lot of uh, testing labs, especially in the earlier days, struggle to actually recover all the THC that's trapped inside the, the emulsification. Is it challenging trying to balance the formulation of those different characteristics of the products and then have the, the cannabis actually highlight with all the terpenes? Is, it, is that a challenge or with based on your skill set with the, the background of the bartending, that was something that you were comfortable with and just easily navigated? Yeah, it's not that hard for me to create a, a beverage that doesn't actually, most people don't detect any cannabis taste at all. And it's because it's blended in there. I mean, I don't know if I could create a lemon lime that wouldn't have any cannabis taste, but frankly, at the, the dilution levels we're talking about, we have a 12 ounce beverage that's roughly 355 grams of fluid. We're putting in five milligrams of uh, cannabinoids. So that leaves you a lot of room. I will say though that I have, you know, I have tried out 50 milligram beverages with my own recipes and you can definitely taste the cannabis a little bit stronger. Um, but you know, some people still don't really notice that. Some people have, you know, a really will, willful blindness when it comes to cannabis flavor. To be honest, I think it's people who've tried edibles more and more frequently, they get used to it and they stop noticing it. But for the most part, people don't really taste cannabis in any of the can trips. Uh, and that, that is intention, uh, intentional by design. And that's just something that is relatively easy for me. When you spend years trying to make cocktails that don't taste like cough syrup, you start to figure out what the elements are and it's usually keep it simple certain, you know, know how certain flavors work together and then build from there. Um, you know, it, you can break flavor. Do, I do something called flavor analysis when I go to make new things where I take what I want in terms of flavor. I break it down as to what I think in terms of its tasting notes, its constituent flavors are, and I seek those flavorings and build them back up. I just did the same with the root beer, and I'm a lot more pleased with the root beer that I built from um, sort of like constituent flavor components than the you know, default beer flavoring that the, the flavor has provided. So that's one of the things I do love best about my job is, is creating these things. Those are any flavors that just absolutely don't work. Those are flavors that just absolutely uh, don't cherry work. is actually always a really difficult one I find to work with with cannabis. And I think it actually has more to do with CBD. You know, I've talked to some food scientists about why that might be. There might be a you know a interaction between benzaldehyde, that is a primary constituent of the cherry flavor, with cannabidiol itself. I really struggled to make a good tasting like C like cherry CBD, but uh, for the most part I haven't struggled with it as much with THC. Um, and a lot of it has to do with dilution rates. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, you can make almost anything work. It's just what is your tolerance for that canvas flavor? Are you willing to blend in something, you know, more interesting to kind of work with it? I just think generally, like using a fruit or citrus flavor on its own, you're always going to taste the canvas flow in. Um, but adding these sort of like herbal and spice twists that we use kind of it blends in with that bitterness a little bit better. Um, I would also, you know, suggest that citric acid and tartness 
do a lot to sort of counteract the um, bitterness of cannabis. The bitterness is a very specific flavor profile. Cannabis is more than just bitter. It's got earthy tones. It's got a very specific cannabis taste to it as well. Uh, But bitterness is there and tartness usually counteracts bitterness. Um, in a similar way that an acid counteracts the base. To clarify, your products have THC and CBD in them? Not all of them, uh, but most of them do. Uh, our original low-dose line has 3 milligrams of THC and 2 milligrams of CBD. We have our higher-dose line at 5 milligrams of THC in Massachusetts. And I don't know when this podcast is going to air, but by next month, we might have 50 milligram beverages out in Minnesota. Ooh, breaking. Um, what, why was that important in the combination? Was it to try and reduce the, the psychoactiveness of the products or was there another reason behind it? Yeah, I think it creates a more social experience. I think having CBD there, you know, what I think what ultimately we found is that it does counteract the psychoactiveness or at least the way that people notice psychoactiveness. And that has actually in some ways been a detriment because people will be high and not think that they're high. Um, this is uh, happened with my mother-in-law. Uh, who drank one and said, uh, you know, I didn't feel anything, but I also never heard her stop talking for three hours uh, <laughs> at, at a time. So I'm absolutely certain it worked. And so there is definitely like less of a, a THC forward effect when you add that CBD, which is why for the five milligrams, we chose to not put uh, additional CBD in there and we get pretty good feedback on it. But overall, the CBD, at least I, from a personal standpoint, I find it a lot easier to continue to hang out with people when I have some CBD in my system. I also am a big proponent of you know, using CBD along with THC because I think THC works better. I also think CBD for me doesn't you know have much impact unless there's THC with it. Are you experimenting with any other cannabinoids? I'm experimenting with some for uh, a line I'm working on that should come out next year. Um, definitely. What's the more? What's the biggest challenge with working with those miners? Is it the price or is it just the the different chemistry associated with it? Yeah, I haven't even gotten into like full pricing yet, but that's almost certainly going to... I haven't found like significantly different chemistry between cannabinoids when it comes to flavors uh, so far in, a, in several years of working with them. I was doing a, a different consulting project with CBG uh, relatively recently, and I didn't notice any material impact of using a different cannabinoid. I mean, they're, they're pretty close, like chemically speaking. And while minor, like small changes can create big effects, they don't always... Um, and so, you know, so far I haven't found any cannabinoid that is like particularly thorny to work with. So when your mother-in-law mentions to you that she's not really sure if she's feeling it, that's a, one of the bigger challenges, right? In, in the low dose beverages is that people are assuming one thing and then they, they experience it. And while they might be feeling it, they're unsure if they are. So how do you have that conversation to make her feel comfortable so that others that are not your mother-in-law can experiment and then continue to buy your product? I honestly don't have a good answer to that. If I did, I'd probably sell a lot more cantrip. The uh, the <laughs> fact is, like, I think we see in Massachusetts, you know, we have our theory of the case, which they go below this. I think that is uh, validated by the biggest cannabis beverage company in the world right now is Can, who primarily started out on these microdoses. I don't think that held in Massachusetts. Levia is still the biggest uh, player here in the state. They only make five milligram beverages. And we see that as soon as we launched our first five milligram beverages, they started outperforming the Lotus immediately. I think people want to feel like they're high. The same way if you drank uh, beer and you didn't feel like you were getting drunk, say something like say something was off. Yeah. And honestly, it's you know it, as much as it's frustrating because I do know that if someone drank the second cantrip, they'd probably start feeling more stoned. These things are still pretty expensive overall at retail. You're talking five to seven bucks a can. So people want to feel something off more. Um, and I think the five milligram dosing profile has been largely more successful in the state than the low dosing profile. 
uh, and we may have to make adjustments in the future uh, to to account for that. I don't disagree, Adam, on, on that. But if someone has one beer and they don't feel anything, their natural inclination is to drink a second beer, which I think is is where we want people to be with the low dose beverages. But people like you can go buy three two beer, right? Which is lower alcohol concentration than normal beer. People don't buy three two beer; they buy regular beer that has two percent more alcohol in it because they know that they're you know what I mean. Like people aren't going to buy the three two beer. So like, I think that like with beer, it's a psychological difference, right? Like you already know that if you drink four beers, you're going to get drunk. That first one just didn't kick in fast enough. And like when you're young, you drink a couple beers, it's a completely different situation. But by the time you're like in your mid twenties and you've done it, been around the rodeo a couple of times, it's a, like a psychologically different experience. And I think with cannabis, because there is the prohibition, you're seeing this massive other difference in my opinion. So I think it's like it's trying to compare apples to oranges with cannabis and beer because like consumers know that if they drink enough beer, they're going to get drunk. They don't know if they're going to get high from drinking cannabis because like my mom literally says that she can't eat enough edibles to get high and she yeah, just doesn't eat edibles. That is its own problem that, you know, cantrip uh, faces as well, which is just some people have incredibly high thresholds or, you know, infinite threshold. There's some people that just don't get high on edibles. But I think that's exactly right, Colin. And I think the other part of it is you buy a beer at a liquor store and it's going to cost you like two to three bucks a can uh, at the end of the day. And cantrip is going to cost, you know, most places are five for a lower dose and seven for the higher dose. Uh, and it's, it's kind of frustrating because a lot of people still, a lot of retailers do actually charge seven for the lower dose one, which means they're taking more than 100% markup on the, the wholesale price. And it also means that they're moving less velocity and people are less willing to buy a couple of them. So there's a couple of frustrations that also come along with not controlling your retailer, not controlling the retail price. Uh, you know, we thought we could affect that through wholesale pricing and it just really didn't move uh, in the way that we wanted. But, you know, it's scale, it's points of distribution, all of those things kind of make it so that beverage is going to continue to be a really tough market. Uh, in any of the regulated marijuana states uh, until things significantly change. And I'm glad Cantrip went in when it did because I said this when I was actually fundraising. If I can't get this online in 2021, we're not doing this because that was, I think, still the last good opportunity to get online for beverages in Massachusetts. Uh, you know, we'll luckily be able to ride that wave into New York State and be one of the very first people online in the regulated marijuana market there. Um, we'll hopefully ride that wave into Connecticut and the other Northeast states. But, you know, I, I see other brands coming online in Massachusetts and, you know, I know they exist, but they only register on the boards when you look at PDSA or headset or anyone, um, with the exclusion of a couple powder drinks that are kind of crushing it out there. Um, there's just only so much shelf space and only so much total addressable market. So if you don't have a chunk there, then you're going to be really struggling to, to carve out space. Brian and I looked at beverages out in Colorado, I think, was it last year, Brian? Yeah. And it was just the kind of the exact same. Uh, what you just described was what we kind of determined from just our analysis of the market. Just because it's such a mature industry that, like like you just said, there's just no way to carve out your own piece after people have been sitting on those shelves for a couple of years, you know? There's just so many products. I was in Canada and I went to a dispensary and I opened up the fridge. I was like, where's the beverages? He pointed me to the fridge. I opened up the fridge and there was hundreds of different products. And I was like, this is the most overwhelming experience. And I just did what like a, a very poor, simple purchaser did is I just reached for like one at eye level. That was like a flavor that I like and just grabbed the first one. Cause I was like, this is, this is overwhelming, right? There's too many choices. Grab that and just left and was like, 
I can't believe how many people are competing for such a tiny, tiny purchasing decision on a tiny, tiny ship. And it's really extremely competitive. It's extremely competitive. And it's, it's even crazier to think that like it's also one of the most difficult things to set up in a regulated cannabis licenses of beverage line. Because most places or cannabis facilities do not build in large amounts of storage space. They do not build in floor drains. They do not build in the kind of electric and water infrastructure that you need for these things. And like, it costs, like, you know, depending on how big you build it, but it can easily run into the millions just to get a ba- pretty basic setup online um, for pretty regular volume. You can do like a small scale thing for about a hundred grand, but to get into any sort of reasonable production quantities, you need to be spending, you know, between 500 and a million at a minimum. And, you know, a lot of places are going to sit down like, well, I have the same license can make beverages and can make vapes. So which one is going to do better for me? Even if vapes are also incredibly competitive, if beverage is just as competitive, the margin's lower, you know, it's it's real tough. But vape's also a tough marketplace. You know, you got to make your choices on how you build your your menu and your facility. But that's also one of the things that drives prices up for beverages. It's not like I have a plethora of options to go to and I can just go to the manufacturer on the street. I mean, we... We had one of the biggest canning lines in the state when we started, and that was like I could basically do like ten cases an hour. <laughs> it was pretty small and slow. We were like in a corner, but we uh, we made it work. And uh, you know, we were nowhere near what Levy was doing like a hundred cans a minute uh, uh, on their line when they uh, when they upgraded. I think like midway through their first uh, first year, but. Yeah, there's still only really like five successful brands that say Massachusetts in the beverage space, and there's maybe like three or four more and a lot more coming online that I'm hearing about, but I don't see how any of them are going to really get shelf space. Who do you think is a a targeted consumer for infused beverages? Definitely what we're finding is that it is a lot of people's gateway in. Um, And Boris Jordan actually said this, I think, at Fencing It back in April, which I thought was a pretty keen insight from a man who has said some pretty wild things about beverage uh, thereafter. <laughs> but he said that people are coming in through more highly formulated products and beverage is nothing if not one of the most highly formulated products in the cannabis space. I think that's right. You know, it's a familiar format for people. I think overall five milligrams in a beverage does hit different than five milligrams in a regular edible. And I think it hits like softer. Um, I think it can be as like, as or more bioavailable, but it seems to hit differently where it doesn't like impact people as much. And this is from an array of beverages I've had with multiple infusion technologies, including my own. I find that it's generally, you know, something like a 10 to 15 minute up um, peak at around 30 minutes and then offset between 60 and 90 minutes, um, even at the five milligram range. Sometimes it'll last a bit longer. I think that can depend on how much makes it into your liver or not. But for the most part, it seems to be a softer high. So I can drink multiple five milligram beverages in a day and get pretty stoned, but feel pretty fine. Whereas when I eat, if I eat multiple five milligram gummies in a day, I'm really going to get that like delta or that hydroxy 11 THC effect. That's going to make me way too stoned. So they're a little bit safer. They're harder to screw up. I think when it comes to your own dosing profile, I think they're just more recognizable. So people can't really focus on, you know, to learn to smoke not to learn to vape. It always drove me nuts when I made vapes. Like people would constantly like complain that it was too complicated to use when there was like a button to press. Uh, it's like the button was like I had to write directions, be like press the button as you inhale. People like I don't really know. That sounds a little tricky to me. As opposed to like dab rigs where people are heating nails and free base and cannabis. Um, I digress, but the uh, I think the the general demo like that's not really a demographic, right? Like people coming into cannabis. 
And if I gun to my head, demographic skews towards uh, women overall and it skews towards honestly higher earners. I think we've seen in uh, there was like an internal study by one of these companies that suggested that people who purchase beverages on average are making like over a hundred grand a year. People who purchase concentrates on average are making like 40 or 50 grand a year. So definitely skews towards the more wealthy, which I think tracks with you know the cost of these things per milligram of THC. But the the demographics used towards women and wealthier women. So I think we're going to see like a lot of millennial professionals focused on these things and, and doing the purchasing, but also just a tremendous amount of people coming into the cannabis industry. And I think that's kind of what makes us uh, sort of the gateway, the gateway drug of cannabis. Yeah, I agree. And <laughs> it's also like, way. it's also something that uh, consumers are comfortable with from like a inebriation standpoint, right? We were talking about beer earlier. Like people are comfortable drinking something out of a can that's going to inebriate them versus smoking or any other like form factor. And most people don't eat an edible or eat like a gummy bear or a piece of chocolate and expect to be messed up from it like mm-hmm. a couple hours later. So I think it's probably the most comfortable uh, avenue in for most new consumers. I mean, honestly, this is, I don't know if this is the next topic, but this for me is like the segue as to why, um, beverages are going to continue to struggle so long as they're contained with only only within dispensaries. Um, and I think it's, for me, it's it's a lot because people who might try a beverage aren't necessarily showing up to the weed store in the first place. These dispensaries really limit like who's coming to get things. And it's a lot harder to sell a five milligram beverage to somebody who's already buying joints and dabs um, than it is to sell a five milligram beverage to somebody who might be just picking up groceries or like, you know, uh, Bud Light for the weekend. And so Minnesota is really represented an interesting opportunity for the beverage market. And you've seen players, including Cantrip, like rush in there because the points of distribution are so much broader. And pretty immediately, uh, you know, stores are taking this on. We're seeing massive growth inside. There's just a gold rush going on in Minnesota right now for cannabis beverages. You want to educate our listeners to what's going on in Minnesota that's different than Massachusetts? Yeah. So the, the key to Minnesota in terms of the legal difference is that Minnesota has legalized Delta 9 THC, the same molecule that is you know, typically of interest in regulated marijuana markets, but derived from hemp. And the legal the, the, the distinction between hemp and marijuana, as far as I can tell, is simply a legal distinction having nothing to do with the actual you know, uh, component genetics of the plant, other than is uh, uh, hemp is considered anything that's grown under the hemp program. So the you know, compliant with the 2018 U.S. Farm Bill uh, and also having less than 0.3% of Delta 9 THC, either when it, both when it's grown and then when it's sold to a consumer. There may be nuances within there too, but essentially, you know, if you grow hemp, you have to get rid of it if it's over 0.3% Delta 9 THC. Um, and you can continue to process it from there if you do. I think you get some remediation options too. I'm not that familiar with the ins and outs. But at the end of the day, now there's a program where if you can get the, the THC derived from hemp, um, inside Minnesota, then you can manufacture. You don't need a special license that takes you know two, three years to get, and you know a Fort Knox level of security system to to make it. And the the only limitate the, the only two real limitations are it must be still less than zero point three percent delta nine THC, so compliant with the Farm Bill. That's checked off pretty easily by most beverages because most beverages are in the you know one one thousandth of a percent range or one one hundredth uh, when it comes to actual biomass. And then the uh, the other limitation in Minnesota is that you get up to five milligrams per serving. 
uh, or 50 milligrams per container. Uh, so those are the, the two matrices that you get to play by. The regulations are always pretty light in Minnesota. And what that has allowed is they're at a pretty thriving market. So instead of, you know, there's about a thousand breweries in Minnesota. They actually, Minnesota's a home, like a, a hub for manufacturing brew and distillery equipment. Uh, it's actually where I got all of the equipment for my other business, which is distillery. The, uh, the, all of these beverage lines can now be used for cannabis, which means they have a lot more options, which means you can get more competitive pricing, which means pricing can go down. You can also have traditional distribution. So somebody who doesn't need to spend years waiting for a license can distribute these products across the state. And so we have basically a normal three-tiered uh, system. And as Brian, you have noted uh, numerous times, uh, not only in this call, but on Twitter over and over again, there's a lot of challenges in cannabis, which is why you should download the, the Dime playbook. Uh, but the... <laughs> yeah. It's a CPG on its own is one of the most difficult businesses uh, there is out there. You are paying real money to make a physical product that needs to be moved to a place and sold to a consumer. When you add the cannabis challenges, everything gets that much more difficult. This is why you don't see beverages below $7 for five milligrams in Massachusetts unless they're you know on sale or in bulk pricing. In Minnesota, there's a real shot. You can buy something for four or five, oh, less than four bucks. At the, at the shelf because you have all of these pre-existing channels and infrastructure you can take advantage of that you know, almost every other business gets to take advantage of. Uh, and so that is really opening opportunity. And more importantly, a lot more people are going to be exposed to your product because you can sell it in grocery stores, liquor stores, uh, restaurants. There's really no limitation on where you can sell it as long as the municipality hasn't banned it. You must be 21-year-old to buy it, so you must still card people. Uh, but uh, you know, there, there's also some gray area, it looks like, when it comes to liquor stores itself. Because in Minnesota, this is one of the strangest laws I've ever heard about a liquor store. In Minnesota, there's a list of things you are allowed to sell at a liquor store, uh, which is unlike, I think, every other state where there's a list of things you can't sell at a liquor store. Uh, and cannabis is not technically on the list of things you can sell in a liquor store in Minnesota. But I think there's some gray area because you consider it a soda, you consider it other things, I don't know. The attorneys out there are honestly still kind of figuring this all out, and so is the state has. But for the moment, it's pretty lightly regulated. There will probably be more regulations in the future, but it's created this huge opportunity for um, beverages. And Cantrip was one of the first, if not the first, uh, cannabis beverage that is also in a regulated marijuana market out there. Um, Cam is also out there as well. And then uh, almost every brewery seems to be coming up with a THC beverage now, which is interesting because I'll be back out there next week and get to try a few more of them. But most of them I have tried have not been stellar. Uh, a lot of people are not so used to working with cannabis in a beverage, and it's not the easiest thing to create a taste for. So I think people are trying to figure that out uh, right now, and that's, that's left a lot of opportunity for people who have kind of sorted all of their stuff out already. I mean, pretty incredible. It can be just sitting there next to like a Bud Light or Budweiser or Michelob Ultra or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, it was great to go to a bar and purchase my product at a bar. It, interestingly enough, too, like the early days of California, there's some amount of self-regulation that seems to be happening. A lot of on-premise locations are uh, restricting THC purchases to like three cans. Uh, Makes you know, sense. So this way people aren't getting like, we don't have a lot of clarifying precedent around what happens if a bar gets somebody high and sends them home and they get into a car crash, right? Like, of course, we have specific laws in this country around what happens if you do that for alcohol. Um, the bar is liable. So that's, you know, one of the, the things that they're going to have to face. And insurance underwriters are scrambling to figure out what's going on. I talked to some, like, 
different marketing companies out there, you know, who own billboards and other media. They're like, we don't even know what to do yet because, uh, you know, there's other like you know, Massachusetts requires warning language on billboards and things like that. Um, that they don't have anything like that. So it's all very new. Um, but it's really interesting because in a lot of ways, this was kind of already legal in Minnesota and they just kind of clarified the laws, which is one reason they passed it in the first place was to clarify like pre-existing law around how much THC you can put in a product on the farm bill because the farm bill does allow you up to 0.3%. And if you guys are out there doing the math, uh, a lot of edibles meet that, uh, that, you know, arrangement. So there's a lot of edibles that could be, you know, sourced from hemp and sold as THC, you know, in any state that doesn't ban it. It's really unclear what's going on, but there were, there were already existing beverages in the Minnesota marketplace before this law passed. There were already existing edibles. And if you do some Googling online, you can absolutely find right now somebody willing to ship you Delta 9 THC breath to your house. So whether or not the government decides to do anything about that is hard to say. You know, as it stands right now, the FDA doesn't actually consider it legal to be selling CBD across state lines in food products. Uh, because it's something called the drug preclusion rule, because epidiolax, uh, which is an epilepsy treatment with CBD as the active ingredient, that was passed through phase three trials and approved in 2018, actually, which is kind of funny. Uh, the farm bill passed uh, later that year, and suddenly the question of what can you put CBD in was, was really unclear, because technically the FDA considers it a drug. You can't put drugs in food. You know, you can't take Viagra and put it in a bunch of gummies and sell it, uh, you know, over the counter to people. Well, you could, but you probably can't. So the FDA already considers it kind of illegal to ship CBD over state lines in, uh, in, uh, or even derived from hemp. And Delta 9 THC would fall under the same exclusion, which is that, you know, it's Delta 9 THC may be derived from hemp and it may hit that 0.3% standard. But there is a drug, Marinol, which exists, uh, which would then, you know, further debilitate these things. So. The FDA actually just appointed uh, a new person, I think, in charge of cannabis policy. I think his name is Noah Bierenbaum. Um, and he has actually some cannabis regulatory experience. So that was an interesting move when coupled with Biden's sort of pardons last week that say, say to me that the FDA is going to take a closer look at this. It's unclear what that's going to mean for the marketplace. It's certainly, I think, still riskier to be selling in Minnesota from like a, a pure perspective of, you know, the regulations could change, then your business has to change with it. But the opportunity is so great that Cantrip said it was worth it. And so did Can. It was, you know, Cantrip is probably one of the, the lowest funded cannabis beverages uh, in the regulated marijuana markets. And Can is probably the highest funded one. So we've uh, we really, I think, matched, uh, matched our energies here. And I appreciate Can for what they've done. They're a great brand with great marketing and such good people. So uh, I'm really excited to be kind of like in that same space alongside them. So just to clarify, a 21 21- an older individual can go to a supermarket and purchase a cannabis beverage in Minnesota. Yeah, that's that's correct. As long as the supermarket is willing to sell it, and we're definitely seeing convenience stores, gas stations uh, pick this kind of stuff up. I mean, imagine any place you see a beverage, you could technically do that in Minnesota. Do you think the consumers will know, though, that these are cannabis products? They're not other hemp products, right? Yes, but if you consume them and you get high, like, will people... First of all, hemp is cannabis. It sort of squares and, squares and rectangles, right? Hemp and marijuana are both uh, forms of cannabis. Same, same, but different. Yeah. Well, they're legal designations, right? So yeah. they should know it's cannabis. All of our packaging says in big, bold letters that there is THC in this product. You know, there's a certain amount of self-regulation, which I think is also important by the companies themselves to say, 
like from a public health perspective, I don't want anyone drinking this who is not prepared to drink THC, especially as, uh, you know, if we move into other um, stronger products as you can do in Minnesota with the appropriate scoring of your servings. I don't want somebody drinking orange soda thinking it's a regular orange soda and drinking 50 milligrams of THC. So it's pretty big and bold. And, you know, there are debates about that because like maybe the government then, you know, that makes a bigger signal to the FDA to do something about it. But I'd rather make accurate statements about what's inside the can um, and, you know, in the interest of my consumers. Because I don't think it looks very good for the brand either to be pushing something which is deceptive. Um, so yeah. ours says cannabis infused. Uh, we use still warning language, similar but not identical to what we would use in Massachusetts, because we feel that it's important to, you know, make you know clear attributions to you know the FDA has not approved this product, um, and keep this product away from children. We actually use the contains THC symbol that you see in Massachusetts directly on the can as well. Um, so it you know it has a lot of the same designations that would indicate it is a cannabis product. We've never put big weed leaves on our product, but I think THC does does a pretty good job of communicating what it is and cannabis infused. So there shouldn't be any confusion. I hope there isn't. I haven't heard any uh, any feedback about people being confused about it yet. But are there any huge differences from a regulatory standpoint on what you need to include on the label in Minnesota versus Massachusetts? Yeah, Minnesota has a lot less language surrounding that. Uh, the only thing that you must put on there is the dosing information all the same information you put on for any food product and the statement keeps the product away from children. You don't even have to put anything that technically, like you should put what's in it, right? THC is in it, so you should put that on there. But there, you don't have the same, like, don't drive or operate a machine while under this product. Or you know, there's a lot of very long, uh, you know, warning language in Massachusetts that is not required in Minnesota. But we put pretty similar statements on the product in Minnesota because we do feel like uh, those statements were generally created in the best interest of public health, um, and we want to comply with that. The self-regulations and you having to interpret what you think is best just leads to so many more challenges across the industry because not everyone likely will take the same path as you. And one of the things that concerns me most just hearing this is if you're sitting at a bar, right, you take two couple shots of Jameson feeling really good and go, oh, that's Adam Terry's brand over there. I'm going to take a 50 milligram beverage. I'm going to have one of those. And the combination of alcohol and cannabis is going to lead to some other hurdles that None of us can even foresee because the combination of those is going to be altering. So, Adam, what do you think about potential combination of those those two beverages? Yeah, it's a pretty good question. It's definitely a call that bartenders are going to have to make and servers. Um, you know, there's a, a history already existing of bartenders having to make pretty tough and discretionary calls around over-serving. I would certainly... You know, we're actually, we've been talking to our distribution partner essentially about not putting the 50 milligram beverages in on-premise locations and focusing only on off-premise locations. And that is one of the reasons for it. We just don't think it's necessary. You know, if bars are only willing to give you 35 milligram beverages, why would they be willing to give you a 50 milligram anyway? So I think from a, a liability standpoint, I don't expect to see those higher dose beverages in bars. They're mostly going to be for take-homes. An interesting thing is so there's actually an exemption in Minnesota for the child-resistant requirement for beverages. Um, so we can use regular lids out there, which is not what we use in Massachusetts. We use the specialty like XO lids. But we actually have chosen to use the XO lids specifically for the high-dose products in order to ensure that they are reclosable so that people don't feel compelled to drink the whole thing in one sitting. They can you know, actually close it, and these are special design lids that will keep it carbonated uh, and keep it completely sealed so they can put it back in the refrigerator. So you know, people may not choose to self-regulate 
uh, and I don't in this in some in many scenarios I don't see that as an advantage. There's other things around like restriction restricting yourself on marketing that I think would be a disadvantage if we took uh, if we you know hamstrung ourselves um, the way certain people do in Massachusetts. For example, in Massachusetts, uh, it, there's a specific language that says you may not use cartoons on the packaging. And I don't know what qualifies as a cartoon, but I've seen a lot of illustrated characters on packaging in Massachusetts. None of them are like Looney Tunes, like, but I think Lowell Smokes is a good example of this. It's literally like a goat man, if I remember correctly, on the front of their package, and that seems to fly in Massachusetts. How is that a cartoon? Is it not a cartoon? I don't know. It doesn't seem that appealing to children, which I think is the most important part. Um, I think it's probably terrifying to children, to be honest. But the, uh, uh, you know, what is a cartoon? Like, can I put how far in a human depiction can I go on a, on a label before I have crossed that step? And what is the enforcement mechanism? So, you know, uh, like those types of things I would fear, but like, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to, you, there are certain restrictions, man. So you can't on a label, like make something that is deceptively, uh, you know, close to a non-cannabis product or like a well-known product. So I couldn't make something that looked really close to Coca-Cola. Another interesting point of like non-regulation is that Fireball, the brand, has a brand of gummies in the THC cannabis space, which is literally the same as a non-cannabis brand. And they just sell it. I've never seen an enforcement action against them. The product's probably pretty good, but I just wouldn't think it would be allowed to use like I wouldn't think Coca-Cola could show up to Massachusetts, make a Coca-Cola infused beverage, put their like normal branding on it. And, you know, I don't think the CCC would allow that. I guess Fireball's small enough that they would they get away with it. But, uh, you know, those those kind of challenges, I see it as an advantage to self-regulate. Like I, the testing regulations in Minnesota say you can't have more than trace amounts of mycotoxins and um, a couple other like microbial points, but it does not define what trace amounts are. So we have to define what trace amounts are. You know, in our beverages, they're all like non-detectable amounts um, because it's actually pretty easy to make a clean beverage uh, if you know what you're doing. But, you know, regulating on the cannabinoid amounts, regulating on how batching is done, those are not super well-defined in the Minnesota regulations. Um, And so by being good actors and providing that information to our consumers, we build a brand of trust. Like people can trust us because we are putting warning language. In fact, I think putting warning language and putting barcodes that can be well traced and putting proper nutrition facts on your label, people are so used to them that they recognize that as the right thing to do. And things look sketchy if they're not on there. So I think we actually look better by putting all that warning language on. And like that's so true that when people make counterfeits, um, I saw the first like counterfeit can like C-A-N-N, the, the brand, the other day, and they had all the warning language on it. Most of these places do, I guess maybe because they're trying to make it look as replicated as possible because things look sketchy when they don't have like government warnings. Even look at your li- liquor bottles. Next time you pick up a liquor bottle, like there are government warnings on there that are required and they do not look correct without them. It's just, it just becomes part of the scenery. So you think uh, cannabis and alcohol will ever be combined? We are talking about them separate uh, and... Also, can you combine them in Minnesota based on the current regulations? Uh, that's a good question. I don't think so. Um, I don't know. When Massachusetts... That 50 milligram beverage you're talking about could be a really good like mixer. You know what I mean? It sits, sits next to the Jameson 
and you just make a mixed drink with a little splash of it, you know? Did we just make did, did we just make the next four loco? <laughs> yeah, four loco famously banned. Kellen's over here trying to find any way that he can mix. Uh, He's like, we're gonna we're gonna make six loco right now. Yeah. I, I gotta say, I'm not a big fan of mixing alcohol and cannabis beverages. I don't think they work very well together, honestly, in terms of like the effect and feeling. This is from a guy who spent a lot of his you know early twenties yeah. uh, crossfaded. Um, so it's not like I've been against in my entire career. I found particularly cannabis beverages, like they don't feel great with alcohol, um, like, like more so than like smoking, uh, itself. Um, so I, I don't know, cantrip's never going to get there. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to make a, an alcohol abuse thing. I don't know what the rules are in Minnesota, but to give you an example of what happened in Massachusetts, because I do have a liquor business in Massachusetts, when cannabis was legalized, uh, the ABCC, which is the governing body of liquor in Massachusetts, sent a letter to every licensee saying you may not put, do not even think about whispering cannabis into your beverage. Uh, like you cannot buy them in Massachusetts. I would expect to see that trend continued. I mean, ultimately, you can add cannabis to alcohol if you want. You just shouldn't be. I don't think you should be able to buy them in the same product. I don't think it's a very good idea. With the exception of, like, you know, concentrated tinctures. It is funny because tinctures, like, definitionally speaking, are made of alcohol. Um, right. But in cannabis, people pretty quickly move to putting them into oil instead because, the you know, it's pretty, pretty tough getting that green dragon directly on the tongue. So... What we call a tincture in cannabis is actually frequently not a tincture by you know the classic definition of it, but I digress. What is one fact operating in the cannabis industry that would surprise or shock others? Demand is not as good as you think it is. <laughs> like you don't have a guaranteed demand for the product going into it. You still as competitive in marketing. Um, and overall, because of the restrictions on distribution and manufacturing the demand is lower than it really should be. Like cannabis demand in Massachusetts is roughly 1.2 billion last year. I think if you had this stuff, like at least I think edibles um, and beverages broadly, like you made those freely available in, you know, liquor stores, uh, much akin to Minnesota and then restricted, I think, you know, cannabis, flour and concentrates, basically anything that's more potent. You're basically 70% of cannabis sales right now. So babes, concentrates, flour, actually maybe more like 80% of the overall market restricted that to dispensaries, but then opened up the low-dose products, all your edibles, into regular distribution, I think it would have been a $3 billion market last year. I think the, the potential of edibles is largely untapped so long as we restrict it to these specialty places. And so demand is actually lower than people think it's going to be. It's one of the hardest things um, about cannabis because we have VCs in cannabis, right? Like you guys are very familiar with the side in and you know, Measure 8 and all of these other venture capitalists. Venture capital means something very different in consumer packaged goods than it does in tech. Tech has potentially infinite upside and relatively low necessity for investment. In tech, you're investing in largely labor and some sales and marketing. In consumer packaged goods, particularly cannabis, you're investing in infrastructure. You're investing in building things, you're investing in um, ingredients and materials. It's so much harder to do and the return is like the potential maximum return is so much lower. The entirety of the cannabis market in the United States is something like the what, 40 to $50 billion range, uh, at least the legal market. You could, I think, open that up to 200, 300 billion pretty easily if you were to open up these edibles into more broad distribution points because people will just not go to the weed store. Like people who would normally consume cannabis, I think, uh, basically because it was available, are not going to the specialty food source. They're out of the way. 
in many cases, even when they are inconvenient, you have to, it's like a whole rigmarole to get through these security places. In California and Colorado, a lot of them still look like head shops, even when there are like certain nicer stores you can go to. Most places you're going to go to are like look like a head shop. And a lot of times they have a metal detector out front because people are showing up with guns and you have to pay all in cash. All of these things make it like a blaring signal in most people's subconscious that cannabis is still illegal. It's still something you should engage in. It's still sketchy. Until we, as a country, wake up and start putting things where they belong. And again, I do think you could ask higher security levels. I think you can, you put the weed in the weed store where the weed people go and they will still show up. You will still sell that much flour and concentrates. But if you can open up these lower dose products that primarily it's it's not really your flower consumers and your you know your uh, more uh, traditional consumers going to, you would see demand skyrocket, and that is really the biggest misunderstanding people have about cannabis. It's not you just go in and demand's there. I've seen I've seen people inside cannabis who've been doing it for a few years make that mistake too, particularly those who are used to. Limited license states. Uh, early days in Massachusetts, it was if you can get a product out to market, you could sell it. I, you know, when I was a product developer for an MSO, I never had a quote unquote failing product because anything I could get to market would sell. Um, but that did not apply when we tried to do some of the same products in California and Colorado. Uh, and so uh, if you are out there thinking your demand just exists, um, it does not. You have to do it and you have to do it right. And uh, <laughs> Quick aside, because I know I've been going very long on this question. I had a guy reach out to me who said he wants to start a cannabis beverage business in New York. And then he has like some people that he knew in distribution. And like, I had to basically call this guy and be like, do not attempt to do this thing that you're about to do because you don't even know that. Like he he alluded to something indicating to me that he he was like, I think there's like more regulations around the cannabis business than other businesses. And I was like, stop you need to do a lot more research before you attempt to do this thing. Cause he thought like, there's going to be a lot of demand there. I know how to make a beverage and distribute it. I got this great food scientist, but he hadn't even read the regulation, like realized it's just not even in the same world. Like it is a completely different world. Unless you have somebody who lives and breathes it, you will not be successful. So, you know, shout out to people who read the playbook, uh, hire people who have cannabis experience to start to run your business. If you're out there and you're like, I'm just going to do it and we're going to figure it as we go you have a much higher failure rate. So bring at least one person on your team who's been doing this for a while. There's a lot of us out there now. This industry is getting a little bit older. There's people who have you know, entire careers in cannabis. So hire them. Uh, I got shamed for, for that statement that having someone with experience, cannabis experience on your team is helpful. And I got shamed. Um, I think I but, saw that thread. <laughs> but hey, shout out to everyone who, who took that advice and shout out to everyone who didn't take that advice and certainly wishes they did because mm-hmm. it's hard. It's hard. So Adam, before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? I mean, pick people you want to work with. Like, is you're, if you're going to spend your time, especially if you're an entrepreneur out there and you're thinking of starting a business and you're picking you know, your co-founders, your first team members, Cantrip has a wonderful team full of people that are, you know, I always think to myself, these these other people who are on my team, these are the people who care about Cantrip in the world the absolute most. And if you're someone, anyone's on your team, you know, at, the, at least at the executive or founding level, that is not all in with what you're doing, you know, it's going to be painful. Um, so, you know, pick your partners carefully, pick your, uh, you know, the people uh, who work for you carefully. People still drive everything. Everything is soft skills at the end of the day. You can be technically inclined to the ends of the earth and you will get nowhere in your career if you can't work with people. And so ultimately, 
develop your soft skills, develop your leadership skills, and you know, pick who you want to work with because you're going to spend 40 hours plus a week doing this. So you may as well like what you're doing and who you're working with. Well said. All right, prediction time. Adam, at the Benzinga conference, Boris Jordan said, five to 10 years out, I think cannabis beverages will represent 50% of the industry. Adam, what needs to change for us to get to beverages being 50% of the cannabis industry? Thank you for framing it that way, because like whether or not I think that's going to happen and how it would, what we would have to do to get there are two completely different things. Completely. Like, I want to know what Boris knows that I don't. Because Probably I a lot. Probably a lot, if we're going to be honest. Oh, yeah, that is true. Okay, like I meant about a couple specific things. Boris Jordan is a smart guy who knows a lot of things. Uh, uh, you know, Cure Relief is a massive organization. They've been very successful in a lot of things they've done. What I want to know that I think Boris Jordan must know is how the FDA is going to treat hemp-based uh, cannabis. Like, it's just what we talked about in Minnesota. But like I said, there are people who have been selling Delta 9 THC products in the United States since 2018 under the farm bill that are derived from hemp. Uh, they're mostly operating under the radar because they don't want to get slapped down by the FDA. They mostly, the most successful ones are not making specific claims about efficacy. But if you could centralize and distribute cannabis beverages, all of which are less than 0.3%, I can't think of, you'd have to have a very, very concentrated beverage. You maybe like the small shots if you did like 100 milligrams of THC. Even then, you might be less than 0.3%. I'd have to do the math about how small your shot can get and how concentrated. If you could do that, I definitely see uh, cannabis beverages this being you know fifty plus percent of the market because you'll be able to get them everywhere. You know, imagine if Target picks this up, imagine if Walmart picks this up, Whole Foods. Those places will never carry like raw flour uh, in there. Like you're never going to go to Whole Foods to the bulk section just see cannabis that you can pick up, which super would be super food. Cool. It's a superfood next to kale. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> next to kale, uh, and they've dried out some specifically for you to eat. I think that's very possible for beverages, and I think. If lawmakers are smart, and if we do this in the most logical way possible, you would allow that. And you would allow largely edibles to be out there, too. You probably, I think, put those behind the counter or put them in some sort of glass case. But I think, uh, uh, you know, they're not more dangerous than alcohol, which is out on shelves all the time anyway, right? And we have ways of restricting that. They're possibly safer than alcohol. And frankly, these low-dose beverages, they can do volume. And there's plenty of players out there that know how to centralize and distribute beverages nationally. So this is entirely possible. And if basically we build on what Minnesota has boldly as a state codified in their own state laws and start to open up other states doing the same thing, beverages should very quickly be, you know, $10 billion. They could be $40 billion in a couple of years and be competing with the rest of the industry. So if he has some inside intel. Boris, reach out to me. I'm on Twitter. I'm very available. I'm <laughs> sure somebody you know has my email address. I know that we're only two degrees away from each other. It's not a big industry. Uh, let me know. We can do a deal. Cureleaf launched Endless Coast. I've, I'm honestly, until this moment, I had forgotten they existed, <laughs> even though they're in my own state. They seem to be doing okay, but they're also... Uh, anyway, my point being... Um, Let's work together. Let's find a way to do this. You know, there's a lot of lobbying out there. And I think that, you know, my my view on the biggest failures of cannabis legalization have been twofold. It's been largely, we didn't really get the kind of cannabis legalization that like the heaviest traditional consumers want. They're not getting the quality that they want a product. Uh, and honestly, shareholders are not really winning in cannabis right now. I mean, if, ask anybody who bought cannabis 
between 2017 and 2020, you know, how their portfolios are doing. And they're, you know, they're all going to say, I'm long cannabis. You know, <laughs> 10, 20, 30 years, maybe that help, that's helpful. But I don't know. A lot of these guys, I'm pretty sure, are going to retire before then. They're going to be taking hits on these long plays. I'm long cannabis as well, don't get me wrong. But if I bought MSOS in 2018 and still was holding on to it, I'd be in a pretty, pretty sore spot. Shout out uh, to Rick. But the, uh, <laughs> the, at the end of the day, the, like, this is possible. We just have to do it right. And if we, I mean, like, look at, I said this on Twitter, look at New York. If you just allowed bodega guys to sell bodega weed, you'd probably solve your social equity problem and no one's going to die as a result of it. It's happening in New York anyway. Why don't we just legalize that? Quart has been saying that they're going to put on dispensaries by the end of this year. And, you know, Rosa Luxembourg is out there on Twitter tracking it take like minute by minute and it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I really don't think <laughs> it's going to happen. I, you know, uh, and even if it does, you're talking like one or two stores as you suggested for a photo op. And like, what does that do for anybody except a politician? We should have just like opened up like New York state and let people sell weed out of Vegas, the like front hand farms. They I are, really they know. are doing that. They're doing anyway. So what is the difference? It's like, and they're not getting arrested for it. So like, why is anybody showing up to attain or any other dispensary in New York? If they can get it cheaper and more conveniently from the guy that they're buying their coffee and bagel from in the morning. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's like absurd to me. And no, you know what? People are doing it in New York basically without any consequence. I haven't heard a single story of somebody dying from marijuana use in, in New York, uh, New York City. It can be done. It should be done. And honestly, I think we should probably just move to that system, find a way to you know tax and regulate that, and we would survive. Absolutely survive. It just like the level of regulation we compromised with the rest of the world, like the rest of the country, on in order to get marijuana legalized in the first place has been one of the biggest hindrances to actually succeeding in this industry. And, uh, you know, that's my biggest failures that cannabis are like actual value for people out of cannabis. But, you know, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't have to have, I'm sorry, it like creates what something for you guys to, to push to people this playbook. It shouldn't have to exist. You should be able to just go grow weed and sell it. And yet we have to go through this whole rigmarole and then pat ourselves on the back for being so cool because we could put the right amount of cameras in our dispensaries so that people could be on camera and then still not be able to use a credit card at those dispensaries. Drives me nuts. Drives me absolutely nuts. All right, rant over. I just want to let you know, Adam, that most people use our platform to pitch mass audience about building brand awareness. <laughs> you took this opportunity to go singularly <laughs> focus on Boris Jordan, the chairman of CureLeaf, which I, I commend you, right? Like, I have not got confirmation that he listens to this podcast, but I'll make sure to tag all of his friends here. So a big shout out to you on that one. Kellen, do you want to take a shot at how cannabis beverages would become 50% of the market? I think I agree a lot with what Adam said in terms of accessibility. I think another thing that could be a game changer, which scientifically speaking, I think, Brian, we've got in this conversation, and I don't know if the science is there to support it, but if some miracle happens and someone's able to produce a cannabis beverage that creates similar experience as alcohol does in terms of a social experience and getting like releasing more endorphins, getting you more amped up and encouraging extra introverts to go have more conversations like alcohol does. Then I could see cannabis beverages growing very quickly under those conditions. But those are the only conditions I see it occurring. 
So you want cannabis beverages to just be alcohol? So okay, okay. So awesome. Okay, like, all right. Guys. All of a sudden, I was like, yeah, they no. invented it. It's called alcohol. Okay, guys. Oh, okay, guys. Let's. <laughs> I just want alcohol without the consequences. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. So let's let's oh. take a step back and let's think about this, right? If Boris Jordan's making this statement at the conference, there's probably a reason behind it. I can't imagine he's just shooting from the hip. I mean, granted, I had no idea that they had a beverage, and based on what you said, Adam, <laughs> they are not doing so well. So I'm sure that he's aware of that. But I think at the end of the day, what is necessary in order to get it to 50% is to have it outside of traditional channels, like, excuse me, outside of dispensary channels, more into the traditional channels, exactly like you said. And how that happens is a Budweiser, a, a Molson, or one of these big conglomerates to go to the government and say, we are going to produce cannabis beverages. We'd like them sold at traditional retail like everyone else. Here's our money. Make this happen. And then when that happens and when it's sold alongside alcohol in supermarkets, it will absolutely explode because at the end of the day, you're right, there are differences in the consumer behavior. But at the end of the day, when you go to a backyard barbecue, most people don't want to take an edible. They want to have something in their hand from a social standpoint. So the ability to have a cannabis beverage that they can buy at a supermarket next to their high noons, excuse me, they can't buy it at a, at a liquor store. Excuse me, they can't buy high noons at a supermarket. They have to buy it at a liquor store. But next to a traditional Coors Light or Bud Light will allow the unlocking of that mass consumer that everyone is seeking in order to get to that, that type of number. There's plenty of supermarkets across this country where you can buy high noon right there. Yeah, that's a New York thing. That's a New York it, thing. It's, an, it's uh, a lot of uh, like a blue liberal state thing where they don't allow me. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, yeah. To be honest, to be honest well, uh, all the MAGA guys are going to come for me now. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> uh, the, uh, honestly, I think I think you're right about that. And the address mess. And let's go, by the way, I don't know how well they're doing. I, wanna, I, I forgot about them, but they're out there somewhere. Yeah. I, believe, I believe in purely. I'm going to state that for the record. Like if, if, if PepsiCo can literally go to the government and pay them a certain amount of money to get this done, that's actually kind of devastating for our democracy. That's but how this works. <laughs> that's, that's how everything I works. Hope, I honestly hope it's not quite that simple. I think there's Probably definitely not. a lot of money involved, but I think there's also a lot of rigmarole involved. Uh, but yeah, PepsiCo wants to partner on this. Uh, please, Pepsi, reach out. Yeah. Uh, is that broad enough for the audience? I, do, that, wanna, uh, I, I do wanna I wanna, do want to say for the record, any beverage company who's not in Canada just wants to reach out and talk to me, you can absolutely uh, find me. I'm very, very available on Twitter, very available through a lot of channels. Uh, I'm very easy to get in touch with. So yeah, PepsiCo, please give me a call. I'm sorry, Coca-Cola, please so, actually do that. Yeah. So, so, you know what's sexy is how much it costs Coca-Cola to make one can of Coca-Cola. Sense. It is like I was like, what? Yes, we haven't even talked about liquid death on this call. Uh, oh yeah, $7 million dollar valuation. We'll have to hold that for another one. So Adam, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to buy Cantrip. Where can they find you? Go to our website, cantripseltzer.com. Follow us on can, uh, on Instagram, at cantripseltzer. Uh, I'm pretty available on Twitter as well. My Twitter name is hard to pronounce because I've reversed the first letter of my last name, the first letter of my first name. So it's hit Adam Airy. Uh, but just Google Adam Terry. Uh, I'm very, very visible. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Signal. If you have uh, sketchy stuff that you want to text me about, <laughs> yeah, and we have a contact form on the website, so reach out. And uh, if I like you enough, I'll give you my personal email address. Awesome! Thanks for taking the time. This was fun, Adam. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com.
Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Yelland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.